Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn to Psalm 83, please? Psalm 83. And tonight we have the final psalm in the book of Psalms that has Asaph as its human author who God inspired to write its every word to us, Psalm 83. And the superscript is pretty short. It's just uh, informing us that this is a song of Asaph. As far as genre goes, so many psalms have different genres, and um, this one would be considered uh, a lament psalm. It's been a while since we went over what that means. A lament is the cry of God's people when our life circumstances don't seem to be lining up with what we know to be true about him. And uh, when we find a lament in these prayer songs here in the book of Psalms, uh, some life situation or circumstance that is causing fear, we always find God telling us what the essential first step out of fear is and to faith. It's for us to focus on the facts, who God is, what God has done in the past, and what God has promised to do so that we can leave fear and we can ascend to a faith that's both good for us and glorifying to God. Psalm 83, let's read it. It says, Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. Be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They've said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarines, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assur also is joined with them. They have hope in the children of Lot. Selah. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin, at the brook of Kassam, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O oh my God, make them like a wheel, as a stubble before the wind. As the fire burneth the wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this night, as we um, study Psalm 83, I pray that you would reveal its truth to us. If there's one here who is right in the middle of a, a place of fear, circumstances in their life, 
um, causing a reaction of, of fear, an emotion of fear. Lord, I pray that we would do what you teach us to do here once again, and that we would leave fear, and that we would ascend to faith. Even if we're not, Lord, I pray that we would worship you by focusing on the facts tonight of who you are and what you have done for us and what you promised to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 8 uh, really give an announcement of the fear. Like most moving from fear to faith psalms, it usually starts out that way. And verse 1 begins this song, as the vast majority of psalms have begun before. We find a cry here in verse 1, for God to listen and for God to act as a response to the prayer that's offered by Asaph here. It says, Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. Be not still, O God. And so there's an inference here in verse 1 that the fear-inducing circumstances that God's people were experiencing, there's an inference that that was indicative of God being absent or God being aloof or unaware that God doesn't care. Now we know from God's eternal record right here and in our own lives that um, as far as his character, his conduct goes, that is never the case whatsoever, that God is absent or does not care or that he's not aware. Um, but one reason that the Psalms are so loved by Christians is because we probably can relate to this feeling as something we have sensed before ourselves. Um, we too often incorrectly sense when we're going through fear-inducing circumstances that that equals God not being strong enough or God not being good enough, that he isn't there, that he doesn't care. Now, verse 2 gives us an important truth in this song. It says, For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. Uh, in verses 3 to 8, God is going to have Asaph describe this current threat um, that God's people are experiencing that's causing their fear. But we're told here that the enemies of God's people are God's enemies. That's what it says in verse 2. Thine enemies, they that hate thee. And that should clear up any assumed ambivalence that we have projected towards God, uh, even about our plight. Here's just one place here in verse 2 and in Psalm 83, among many places in God's word where um, God tells us that the enemies of his people are his enemies. So, of course, he's aware. Of course, he cares. He's there. Verse 2 says that the enemies of God and God's people, they're making a tumult. That those who hate God and those who hate his people, they have arrogantly lifted up the head with an insolent rebellion toward God and what they're doing. And then verses 3 to 5 describe what they're doing. It describes this tumult, this threat that's causing the fear in God's people. All these people have taken counsel. They have consulted together against God and his people. They formed a military alliance. As verse 4 says, they said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. That's a serious situation, isn't it? That's a, that's a significant threat. They're trying to wipe out an entire nation. No wonder there's fear on the part of Asaph and the people of God. And that threat has been present since God's people became God's people. I mean, the whole book of Esther is about that. And um, 
it's a threat to God's people today, to God's ethnic, national people, Israel. I mean, right now, we are, you can turn on the news and hear the leaders of Iran basically quote verse 4. I want to wipe them off the map, uh, that their name be remembered no more. And at the same time saying, well, no, our nuclear program is only for energy use. Never mind that enriched uranium has no point in energy use. Verse 5 refers to this alliance again. And notice once again that these are not just Israel's enemies. They are God's enemies. It says, for they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against the God. They're confederate against thee. Um, Verses 6 to 8, it gives us the details of who is in this alliance against God and his people. Who is causing this tumult and the resulting fear in God's people. Who is it? It, It's their age-old, long-standing enemies. Nations who have been a thorn in the flesh to God and his people for as long as anyone can remember. Verse 6 talks about Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and Hagar's descendants, verse 7, Gebel, Ammonites, Amalekites, Philistines, those from Tyre, verse 8, there's a new threat on the radar, Assur, Assur, which, which would soon become the worldwide conquering power, Assyria. Now the single interpretation here, and what we have been talking about so far, is regarding God's national and ethnic people, Israel. But is there an application for those who are God's people now? Uh, For those who the Apostle Paul refers to as spiritual Israel, and I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ, you and I, those who are God's people regardless of their nationality or ethnicity under the new covenant, yet there's definitely an application or a word for us here in Psalm 83. Do you have age-old, long-standing enemies? You've got a couple few. Satan, sin, self. Um, and you might have some others from time to time. And do they ever make a tumult like we're reading about here? Have you ever conquered any fear that they cause by focusing on the facts about who God is and what God's done and what God's promised to do only to find out that maybe days or weeks or years later they're back? And they've lifted up their head, as it said at the end of verse 2. Just like Israel, uh, you have this persistent, perpetual enemies that, that you keep defeating, but then they keep coming back. Uh, well, if you're honest, I think your answer would be yes. So what are we to do? Well, we're to do what God's people here in Psalm 83 are encouraged by God to do, and that's always focus on the facts. So in verses 9 to 15, we, we see an acknowledgement of the facts. That's always... Uh, the book of Psalms prescribed first step out of fear that isn't good for you and that strips glory from God. It's been the first step provided for us uh, in each one of these moving from fear to faith Psalms. So in verses 9 to 15, we got some imprecatory prayers that God would judge the enemies of him and his people. But even in these imprecatory prayers, there's an acknowledgement of the facts about who God is and what God has done before to fuel our faith and what he's promised to do. Beginning in verse 9. It says, Do unto them as unto the Midianites. And so these verses are not just um, a come and save us, come and deliver us, God. They are a come and save us, come and deliver us, God, like you have before. You've done it before, do it again. 
And that's important because God tells us to focus on these facts for us to leave fear and rise to faith. Verse 9, it's a due to our enemies, due to your enemies now, God, what you did to our and your enemies back in the book of Judges. He's talking about Gideon. When God used him and 300 soldiers with some really strange weapons of war, clay pots and torches, to defeat the Midianites. God did that. Uh, you remember that? Verse 9 it provides another instance. We went over these on, I think it was Sunday night when Tommy and I were leading you through the so great a cloud of witnesses. We talked about Gideon, and we also talked about Deborah and Barak and Jael, and that's the next reference there in verse 9 uh, when they defeated Sisera, the general of King Jabin in the book of, of Judges. All in God's power. In verse 10 to 12, it continues the history lesson with a bunch of names that we might not know, but these people knew it meant something to them. This is when God came through. Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and Zelmuna. And verse 12 says, Who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. That was the threat back then, and it's similar, almost identical to the threat that they're facing right now. A same lifting up of the head that they did back then. The enemies of God's people are doing now with this threat, with this tumult they are causing. And let me remind you that when fear arises and the enemies of God and his people begin causing a tumult, we have a choice. We do. We can remain in fear. We can remain affected by fear. We can remain focusing on the tumult, listening to its noise. It's raging, or we can follow what God tells us to do here and begin to acknowledge the facts. Has he ever come through before? That's what we're being told here in verses 9 to 15. Has he ever come through before for you? Isn't that who he is? Isn't he a way maker over and over again? Has he ever done this in your life prior? And I mentioned this before to you, but sometimes the fear-inducing tumult is so loud <laughs> that we have trouble remembering how he has done this in our own lives. And that's why God's given us 66 books that tell us about it. And you spend some time here, and it's not too long afterwards, not too long after you focus on what he did in Judges, or First Kings, or Isaiah, or in the Gospels on a hill called Calvary, that our memory is jogged, and we begin to remember how he has come through before for us in our own lives, as his people, for us. Now would you look at verses 13 to 15. Asaph prays in verse 13 that God would take away this threat, and the enemies that are causing it, that he drive this alliance away and scatter them. The King James says like a whale. He's talking about a whirlwind, like a tornado uh, would do to dead grass or, or stubble vegetation. And then in verses 14 and 15, just like a wildfire, and we've got a couple of those going around here right now, but just like a wildfire that can sweep through a, a forested mountain and, and destroy things very quickly, Asaph prays that God would be a tempest to their tumult, that God would be a storm to the tumult that they are being to his people right now. And finally, in verses 16, 17, and 18, we see an ascent to faith in these final three verses. We see two ways that Asaph has moved from fear 
to faith. First of all, there's a, there's a pretty abrupt change in the imprecatory language, or at least some clarity about its motivation in Asaph's heart. In, in verse 16, it says, Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Fill, thy fa- fill their faces with shame, Lord. So, so the calling down of God's judgment on the enemies of God and his people, it continues, but please notice how that verse concludes. Why is he praying this? So that they'll seek your name, God. Not just judgment for judgment's sake, not just judgment for vengeance's sake, or even solely to to get out of this position, to, to have some relief from this fear, but so that they will recognize who you are, God. So that they will seek your name, like we do. Now, that's pretty big of Asaph, isn't it? To pray for your enemies that way? Magnanimous that they would repent and come to acknowledge God and seek him. And let me tell you, that kind of heart does not come from a heart of fear. That kind kind of heart only comes from a heart of faith, a heart that's at rest (laughs) with who God is and what God has done and what God's going to do again, what he's going to do again. And I would say by the content now of verses 17 and 18, it's implied that God's enemies referred to back there in verse 16 that they chose not to recognize God. Um, Even after God answered Asaph's imprecatory prayers and sent judgment their way, um, and that's not unusual. (laughs) Man is that hard-hearted. God can send all kinds of judgment, like even those in Revelation 16. That's going to be the greatest judgment ever experienced in the Great Tribulation. And those people there who are feeling the effects of God's unbridled wrath, what does it say that they do? They still curse God and refuse to repent of the evil that they have done. So in verse 17, it says, Let them be confounded. Let them be troubled forever. Imprecatory prayers keep going. Yea, let them be put to shame and let them perish. Asaph again prays for God's judgment on them. But then notice verse 18 has a similar motivation to verse 16 from a heart of faith. So that men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, are the most high over all the earth. Asaph is praying, God, if our enemies won't turn as a result of your judgment, then come and deliver us by destroying them so that others will see who you are. Others who are going to watch this. We'll see what you've done again and what you promised to do for all who will put their faith in you. That's the first way we can tell he's moved to faith. And the second way we can tell that Asaph has moved from fear to faith is in what's occupying his mind in verse 18. See, there's no mention here of Edom, right? Or Moab, or Ammon, or the Amalekites, or the Philistines, or the Ishmaelites, or Assyria. In verse 18, who's on Asaph's mind now? Jehovah. Just Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. Right? That's who's on his mind right now. And church, listen, when fear and life circumstances that cause fear, when it comes our way, we've got to move. We've got to move. It's not good for us. It strips the glory that is due to God alone. And the first step out of fear And two faith is focusing on the facts. That's what God's doing again here for us. The majority of the psalm, right in the middle, 
who God is, what God's done, what God's promised. And when we obey God, when we do that, take that first step, faith is not far away. It'll come rather quickly. A heart of fear transforms to a heart of faith that can actually pray for our enemies, for those who are afflicting us, for those who are frustrating us, so that they seek and know God. And a heart of fear becomes a heart of faith where our attention is no longer on our fear-inducing circumstances, but now it's consumed with our faith-deserving God. Let me ask Tommy and the praise team to come up here. Isn't he worthy of it? Yeah, he's worthy of it. Let's express it to him as we close tonight.